Okay, thank you for joining us this morning. Open up your Bibles to Mark 9, 2 through 10. Mark 9, 2 through 10. And if you're joining us online, you'll see the verses on your screen. If you're here in person, you'll see it right behind me. All right, praise the Lord. This is God's word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, I think there's a breakout trying to happen. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) I would want to be in here too. Okay, where was I? I don't know. Uh, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one, what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Let's pray. Father, we give you all the glory. And Lord God, truly, Lord, you are here with your people. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you, we glorify you, because you are our God, as Susan prayed earlier. And we are your people. And Lord Jesus, what more can we have than you? And what could be better than to be with you? And so Lord God, thank you for this time. And I pray, Lord, as we continue to look at your word and we look at what it means to be a disciple, please speak. Please reveal your truth to us and build up faith in your son. We thank you for everybody who made time to be here. Thank you for everyone who logged online. Father God, continue to draw us closer to you. Build your church, Lord. Help us to be your disciples. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this is the year of disciple, and we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Mark, looking at what it means to be a disciple. And last week, we looked at a very important passage, but we looked at the heart of discipleship in Mark chapter 8. So the heart of discipleship. And in that passage, we saw three different ways that discipleship was summarized by Jesus, but he basically said, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, then these are three essential things you must have. Take up the cross, see the reward of the cross, and then bear the shame of the cross. And so Jesus made this radical call to anyone and everyone who would follow him. And in Mark's gospel, it's very clear. Jesus did not say that just to his disciples only, but he turned to the crowd. In Luke's gospel, it says a great crowd. And he said it to everyone there. So this means this call to discipleship was not just for the super spiritual or the super committed, but it was to everyone and anyone who wanted to follow Christ. So what this means is, this is Christianity 101. This is about as basic as you can get. So this is not the climax to a believer's life. This is the very beginning of a believer's life. So taking up your cross and dying to yourself, in other words, surrendering your will every day completely and utterly and totally to God, that is the heart of being Jesus' disciple. 
And this is nothing special. This doesn't make you an elite believer. This is just the beginning point of your walk with God. And all of this was totally confusing and discouraging to the disciples. And so we're going to be looking at this today. But they didn't make, it didn't make sense to them. They couldn't make sense out of it. And so the reason is because this call to discipleship was on a collision course with their naturalistic perspective. See, when they heard Jesus' call to discipleship, the cross had no place in their vision for Jesus and their vision for their own lives. And yes, they had a vision for Jesus and their own lives. But the cross had no place. And the reason is because the cross only meant one thing in that time. It just meant death. Death to self. And we covered that last week. But death? Jesus, really? Take up my cross and then follow you? No thank you. Right? That's exactly what they were thinking. The disciples were no doubt thinking, that is not my vision for your life or for my life. They had grander, more exciting things in mind. So this was the posture and the perspective of the disciples, and this was especially clear when Peter rebuked Jesus for saying that he was going to go to the cross. So remember that? So moments before, he was filled by the Spirit, rose up and said, you are the Christ. What a glorious statement. That was the truest thing he would say. And then a little after that, Satan moved him to rebuke Jesus. No, never. May it never be. You're not going to go to the cross. And so Peter had a clear misunderstanding of why Jesus was here and what it meant to follow him. I and mean, that's what that whole episode meant. He had no clue. He was lost. And Peter was not alone in this, but he was the spokesman. He represented all the other disciples. So pretty much whatever he said is what they were wanting to say. Whatever he thought is what they were thinking. And so all of them had this kind of mind and heart that was naturalistic, humanistic, all of them were driven by the emotions of the flesh. I mentioned last week worry and fear, but they were just worried about Jesus and afraid of what he was saying. It was all just emotion of the flesh. These were values of the flesh. And when I say flesh, I mean the old natural part of us, the part of us that's not touched by God or changed by God. And before we became believers, that was everything in us. But we still had that flesh within and so this is what they were speaking out of. But their faith was man-centered, not God-centered. Okay, to put it more bluntly, the disciples saw Jesus and following him as just another way of getting things that the natural self always wanted. They were just now seeing Jesus as another way to get the things that they've always wanted, long before they met him. We're talking about power, prestige, influence, wealth, comfort, the good life. And for them, it was to come out of the rule of Rome and to live their own way. I mean, the good life. Jesus was their ticket to the good life. And by the way, that lifeless form of Christianity is still everywhere today. It is literally found in every church and every city throughout the entire world. And this attack on true Christianity is more devious and effective than a frontal attack, like persecution. Why do I say that? Well, it's because this kind of attack, it comes from the inside, within the church. And then it begins to spread and it rots the church from the inside out until it collapses. See, that's far more effective than just someone coming and trying to attack the church head on. If anything, that grows the church. That makes the church even more powerful, more united. So Jesus saw this. He saw this rot, this rot of man-centered Christianity, this man-centered, flesh-driven faith. 
And he had to bring a sledgehammer to that. So when Peter rebuked Jesus for talking about the cross, he rebuked Peter. And then after that, he cried out, if anybody wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Because that's exactly where I'm headed. I'm going to my cross. And he said all of that so that his disciples would find true, eternal, abundant resurrection life. So ultimately, this was for their blessing. Jesus wanted to bless them. So he made it so clear, the cross is the only path to that life that I came here to bring. You want eternal life? You want abundant life? You want resurrection life? You must take up your cross and follow me. And so this was totally confusing and discouraging to the disciples. They could not make sense out of it. And here's where Jesus is so great. Jesus is so beautiful. More and more these days, as I've been going through the Gospel of Mark and even watching a TV series on the life of Jesus recently with my family, I'm just falling in love with Jesus again. But this is where Jesus is so great. But as the shepherd of their souls, Jesus, he knew they were discouraged. See, if you're feeling discouraged today and you're struggling in some area of your life, you need to understand that. That is also the beginning of your faith, is Jesus knows. Jesus knew that they were confused and discouraged. And so after giving that hard word on discipleship, he didn't lead them into another valley. You know what he did? He led them up a high mountain. That's the very passage after last week. He led them up a high mountain. And this is where we pick up in Mark Chapter 9, verse 2. So Jesus took them up a mountain to impart to them precious gifts. Okay, these are gifts that they needed to have in order to follow him all the way to the end. And all of these gifts come from Jesus himself. What I mean is they flow out of his very nature and his very mission. And no one else can give these gifts to you or to any of us. If you are outside of Christ, you will never find these gifts. And yet these gifts are available to every disciple of Christ. And disciple is just a synonym for believer. If you are just a believer, then these gifts are already yours. In fact, they are already within you. And it's so important that we understand this. You must understand this. Jesus has gifts for you. And we're not just talking about spiritual gifts. Oh, I like to serve. We're talking about profound, rich, life-changing gifts. See, being a disciple of Jesus is not just about dying and giving your very life. Yes, it's about that. But it's more than that, amen? It's not just about sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. That's all we hear when we hear discipleship. Oh, I gotta sacrifice. Yes, it is that, but it's much more than that. But you being a disciple of Christ is receiving from him It's having a life that you could never have on your own. You know, back when I was a college pastor, I used to give this analogy all the time. It's kind of one of the only things that would connect with the students. But I would say, have you ever been to Disneyland? They're like, yeah. Well, imagine having a ticket to Disneyland and you have it in your wallet and you go to the very entrance to Disneyland and I don't even like Disneyland. I don't even know why I use this analogy. But imagine going to the very entrance and you have that ticket in your pocket and you never pull it out and turn it in to walk in. That would be going to church and never being a disciple, never being a true believer. And so what I tried to convey by sharing that back when I was a college pastor is, don't you know, that is where the real fun and the real life, the real abundance begins, is when you are a disciple. Why? Because Jesus has gifts for you. 
And so we receive from God far more than we can ever give back to God. In fact, Jesus said in Mark 10, 29, the very next chapter, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive back a hundredfold. What is Jesus saying? You will receive back far more than you give. And there's really no way to put a price value on these gifts. They are infinitely precious. They are more precious than gold. And Jesus offers them to you. In fact, if you're a believer in Christ, they're already yours. They're within you. So what gifts are we talking about? These are the very gifts that Jesus led them up a high mountain to bestow, to begin to impart to them. Well, we're talking about enduring faith, Shekinah glory, the eternal gospel, and divine authority. And these things are so massive, they're so rich, we can only take two at a time. So we're going to look at two today, and we'll look at the rest next week. But enduring faith, Shekinah glory, eternal gospel, and divine authority. But these are the unbelievable gifts that Jesus had prepared to give to his disciples. And so he took his three closest and took them high up a mountain to begin to show them and impart these gifts to them. And later, the remaining disciples would receive, and then everybody would begin to receive. So first, enduring faith. It says in Mark chapter nine, verse two, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So right there, it says after six days. Six days after what? What is Mark talking about? Well, he's talking about six days after Jesus told them that he would suffer many things when he gets to Jerusalem and then be killed and then be raised back to life. He was talking about six days after Jesus rebuked Peter for trying to stop him from going to the cross. He's talking about six days after he made his radical call to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So all of that happened six days prior. So now it says six days after that very difficult, challenging time, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So after speaking some discouraging words to them, Jesus was now going to speak encouraging words. So after shaking up their faith, he was going to now build up their faith. So this is what's happening. So Jesus took Peter, James, and John and went up a high mountain. Mark does not tell us what mountain this is. None of the gospel writers do. It's not important to the story. But Bible scholars, if they had to guess which mountain would this have been, they guess probably Mount Hermon because that's the only true tall mountain in ancient Israel. But it rose over 9,000 feet above sea level with snow-capped peaks. When you were up on the summit, you would see a panoramic view of the entire plain below for miles and miles. So this is most likely where Jesus took his three disciples And then he went up this mountain slowly as the sun began to set. And they were most likely going up this mountain at night because according to Luke's gospel, once they arrived at the spot Jesus wanted, the disciples were very sleepy and they eventually fell asleep. So here they are now, they're with Jesus up on this high mountain, it's at night and they're asleep. And then suddenly a flash of light shined all around them, and it wasn't noise that woke them up, but it was brilliant light, and it shook them awake. And when they opened their eyes, they saw something they could not believe. Jesus was transfigured before them. And that word transfigure means a sudden and great change in appearance. This is more than extreme makeover. We're talking about something that you cannot explain. 
You're changed into something glorious. That's what that word means. So he was transfigured. And transfigured, that word is also in the passive. So Jesus did not do this to himself, but God the Father did it to him. So Jesus was transfigured by God the Father. So in a sudden flash of light, Jesus, the Son of Man and the Son of God, revealed his divine nature. This is what's happening. For all eternity, he was with God the Father in heaven in pre-existent glory. It was his own glory, and then suddenly, in one moment, it was revealed. It was revealed, and admittedly, only a fraction of it, because if he revealed the entire thing, they would have been fried. They would have all died. But he revealed a fraction of his pre-existent glory. And here's what I want us to get. None of this was for Jesus' own benefit, but he did it purely for the disciples. It was for their benefit. And we know this because later when God the Father spoke from heaven, he addressed who? Did he talk to Jesus? No, he talked to the disciples. It was for them. He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The voice from heaven didn't boom and say, you are my beloved son. That's not what he said. He said, this is my beloved son. He's talking to the disciples. He already said to Jesus, you are my beloved son at his baptism. That already happened. This is different. He said, disciples, this here is my beloved son. See, he's talking to the disciples. And then he said, listen to him. So here, everything that was done was for the benefit of the disciples. So he was giving them a glimpse of the future, that Jesus' future and their future would not only result in death, but actually there was something far greater. It would result in glory. See, this is what the whole transfiguration was about. So God, by his mercy and grace, when they were just beaten down, discouraged, they were confused. Okay, what is this talk about going to Jerusalem and being killed and what's going to happen to us? Jesus said, come on up. Come with me up to the mountaintop. And up there, God the Father and Jesus the Son began to just change their thinking. They began to impart these things. But all of it was to change their naturalistic understanding and give them a spiritual understanding. See, confusion and discouragement often come when God's spiritual truth collides directly with our natural understanding. Isn't that what happened earlier with the disciples? See, they didn't get it. It's like, I'm thinking this, but Jesus is saying this, and so the truth of God, which is spiritual, began to collide with their naturalistic understanding, and what was the result? Confusion, discouragement. And I've seen this countless times, not only in Scripture, but here. At the promise, as I've pastored this church for many years now, I get to talk to a lot of people. That's one of the blessings of being a pastor, is I get to just talk to a whole bunch of people. And by far, the most common reason why people come to me and get discouraged in their faith, and when they begin to share, it's very obvious, is they had one kind of expectation from God, and God had a very different expectation for them, which is clearly laid out in the word. But there's a mismatch of expectation, and so they don't know what's going on, so they become confused, and then they become discouraged. So what do I mean? Well, what they expected from God is almost always, God, bless me! Right? That's why I'm a Christian. That's why I believe in you. I want you to bless me. I want you to answer my prayers. Let me get into the school I want. I want you to give me the girl or the guy I want to marry. I want you to help me when I'm sick. I want you to just talk to me when I'm lonely. I mean, bless me. And if I'm going into problems in my life, then take it away. Right? And for most people, 
and not just here, but everywhere, that's the sum total of their Christian life. I mean, it begins and it ends there. God bless me, God help me. And anything beyond that, I don't know. The Bible's a very big book, it's very complicated, I don't know. All I know is God, I want you to bless me, and God, I want you to help me when I'm suffering. And so this kind of thinking is more prevalent at any other time than at any other time than today. And the reason why is because in our culture today, they have no category for suffering. And so the only thing that people need to do with suffering is get rid of it. And so we we see that even in the church. And so oftentimes, whenever I talk to people, this is what I hear. This is a mismatch in expectations, but this is not how God sees it, right? Yes, God will bless us. Yes, he will take away suffering, but not right away. In the present, his will for our lives could be the exact opposite. What I mean is he could be taking away the very things we consider blessing. That could be his will. And he could be allowing the very suffering we want to avoid. That could be his will. So it could be the exact opposite. But how can that be, right? Why? Well, it's because what God expects is not what we expect. Again, it's a mismatch in expectations. Again, we want to have a good life, we want to be well, we want to be comfortable, we want to get the goals we want, and so we want God to do that for us, and yet God has a very different goal. He wants your faith to endure. He wants you to mature and grow and endure in your faith, and he wants you to become like his son, Jesus Christ. And in God's mind, that is exceedingly greater and exceedingly more precious than anything we want in our life, even if they're good things even if it's to be healed of cancer or to have a child if you're married and you don't have a child, even the greatest things that we can imagine, God says this is even greater. You must have a faith that endures and grows and you must become like my son Jesus Christ because that is by far the greatest blessing in your life. And so this is God's expectation and he will even bring suffering into our lives and he will have us take up our cross if it'll produce that. That is the greater blessing. That's what he wants. See, again, it's a mismatch in expectations. So this is where confusion and discouragement often comes from, and it comes from our naturalistic understanding of being out of sync with God's spiritual truth. And it takes time to change this. It doesn't change immediately. Just because you become a Christian and you come to church, even if you go to a Bible-preaching church, which I believe this is, it doesn't mean you change right away, but it takes time. Because even after Peter was moved by the Spirit, and he declared, Jesus, you are the Christ. What happened? Well, we saw what happened. He was moved by Satan, and he rebuked Jesus. And so it takes time. So Peter, he was acting out of his own man-centered understanding immediately after being moved by the Spirit and having a spiritual understanding. So how can that be? Well, that's just how we are. And even in the transfiguration, we see him continuing to act out in this naturalistic, humanistic way. Again, this is after he declared, Jesus, you are the Christ. And now here he is up on a high mountain, standing in the presence of God's glory before Jesus' brilliant radiance. And he called Jesus what? Rabbi. Rabbi. I like what this one Bible scholar said, but he said, the moment Peter opened his mouth, he had two feet stuck in his mouth. (laughs) Right? Immediately, he made two mistakes. But first he called Jesus Rabbi, not Lord which is shocking when you think about where he was at. He was high up on a mountain standing before the radiant glory of Christ. I mean, he was shining like nothing he's ever seen. And he goes, Rabbi. 
And Peter himself had confessed earlier that Jesus is Lord. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, but now he's just rabbi. So it seems like Peter already forgot. And then the very next thing he said is he suggested making booze, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, and another for Moses. And in that moment, he did what? He put Jesus on the same level playing field as these other two, Moses and Elijah. And so that was another mistake. So do you see that? Right away, Peter, he's just back in his own naturalistic thinking. Just moving and acting out of the flesh, even after having such a glorious moment, speaking from the Spirit, the words of God, you are the Christ. So we're all like that. It takes time. So we can also easily slip into our old way of thinking again. So this is where God must intervene, and then he imparts to us his gifts. See, this is what we must understand. And in this transfiguration event, he imparted what? Faith. That was the first thing that he imparted. He began to impart faith into Peter's heart and into the disciples because they were slipping again. They were back in their humanistic thinking. So here was faith. So God stepped in miraculously and corrected their thinking back to a spiritual mindset again. So first, he corrected Peter by showing him Jesus is not just a rabbi. He's not even just another prophet. But who is he? He is my beloved son. This is my beloved son, the voice from heaven boomed. So he corrected Peter. Not to mention uh, he's transfigured. He's as radiant as the noonday sun right in front of your eyes. This is my beloved son. Yes, he is a rabbi, sure, he's a teacher, but he is exceedingly more than that. So God corrected him. But not only that, he said, listen to him, right? This is my beloved son, listen to him. And so what was God the Father talking about there? He was most likely correcting Peter and the disciples on what Jesus said earlier about the cross and then Peter rebuked him, remember that? That just happened six days earlier. Jesus said, when I get to Jerusalem, I will be rejected, suffer many things, and then be killed. And Peter said, never, right? Never, may it never be. How can you say that? Stop saying that. And then now God, six days later, appears and says, this is my beloved son. Quit seeing him in a natural way. Quit seeing your own life and your own heart and everything around you in a natural way. This is the spiritual truth. He's my beloved son. And then what else? Listen to him. Listen to what he had to say. He's talking about the eternal gospel, and we're going to look at that more next week. He's talking about why he's here, the mission that I sent him on. He will go to Jerusalem and be killed and then be raised back to life for your salvation. Listen to him. Listen to him. Quit thinking in your naturalistic, humanistic way. And so here's God stepping in and in a miraculous way correcting their mindset. And this this is what we need, brothers and sisters. We so easily slip into that, right? Right? Okay, right now we're sitting here, I'm shouting at you guys, we're hearing the word of God, and you're like, okay, yes, God, yes, glory, I must live for God. And then tomorrow what happens? Oh, I must live for money. I must live for this girl I like. I must live for my GPA. And so God must continuously come and say, listen, right? Quit thinking in that humanistic, naturalistic way. You need to have more faith. And so he shows up and infuses and imparts more faith. So here he affirmed again Jesus' identity as the Christ. He was correcting Peter and the disciples that Jesus was not wrong when he said, I will be killed and raised back to life. You must accept that. This is something that God is willing. He said, listen to him. So in this moment, he was 
building faith and imparting faith. And he was bringing their expectations and their mindset in line with spiritual truth. And then many years later, this is amazing, but looking back on this event, Peter had this to say, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor, oh, I'm sorry, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's talking about that event. He's looking back decades later as an old man going, I remember that. See, for us, this is just a story. I mean, was this even real? It sounds like a myth. But Peter, he's like, I remember that day. Like yesterday, it was an actual day. I was an eyewitness to Jesus being transfigured and I heard the voice, the miraculous voice from heaven. And so he said he saw the majestic glory of Christ and the voice out of heaven affirming Jesus' identity. And here's the point, brothers and sisters, that is what Peter's faith rested on. And this is what our faith rests on, his testimony and the disciples' testimony. You know, it's popular these days for people to define faith as belief in the absence of evidence. Have you guys heard that? Maybe sometimes you want to share the, the gospel to a non-Christian friend. They go, oh yeah, that's just faith, right? You're just asking me to believe without evidence. That's how a lot of the new atheists like to characterize faith. They say, if you have evidence, that wouldn't be faith, right? The moment you have evidence, that's no longer faith. So faith must be believing something with no evidence. But that is not how the Bible defines faith. Because the Bible defines faith as what? The assurance of things hoped for. And where does that assurance and hope come from? It comes from God's creative and redemptive act. So it's actually based upon something. So faith is an assurance or trust in who God is based on what he's done. See, it's not believing something with no evidence. It's actually trusting in God because he's acted in history and in creation. But you might say, okay, sure, God's acted in history, but I wasn't there. I wasn't there for the transfiguration. I wasn't even there for the resurrection. The disciples were. So our faith must be different. It must be belief in the absence of evidence. And I'm I'm here to tell you, no, it's not. It's not. Our faith is based on what Jesus' first disciples directly saw. See, that's our evidence. They are our evidence. It's still based on evidence. And all 12 of Jesus' disciples and others after him laid down their lives for what they saw with their own eyes. Peter said, I saw that. I was an eyewitness. And tradition tells us, and there is no other tradition to contradict this, But we know from tradition that Peter went on to preach the gospel wide and far and then he was crucified for his testimony, upside down. And so he laid down his very life. And many people have laid down their lives for that testimony. But you might go, yeah, but but what if you just believe in something, thinking it's true, but it's really a lie? I mean, don't a lot of people do that? Don't other people of other religions do that? They lay down their lives thinking it's true, but it's really a lie? What if we're doing that, right? What if I'm really basing this faith, but it's a lie, but I think it's true. And then I lay down my life for that. Well, again, I'm here to encourage you, no, your faith is different because the first disciples were in a very unique position. They were the only people who knew 
if this was true or not. See, we don't know that. We just take their word at face value. But they knew because they're the ones telling the world, right? They're the ones who know if this was true or not, whether Jesus was transfigured. They're the ones who know if Jesus was indeed raised back to life after seeing him clearly crucified and put to death. They know. They're the ones who told the whole world. So they are in a unique position. They are the only ones in history to know if this is all true or all false. And let me ask you, who in the world do you know who would lay down their lives for a lie who know it's a lie? Who does that? As Peter's arms were being stretched out and as he was about to get crucified, I mean, don't you think it would just cross his mind? You know what, guys? Stop. Stop. I made it all up because I know it's a lie. Jesus really didn't come back to life. We know where his body is. Right? And all the other disciples, all 12, died for their testimony. So who in the world does that? Who dies for a lie knowing it's a lie? Many people die for a lie knowing it's a truth or thinking it's a truth. But the disciples were unique. They were the only ones in history who actually know if any of this was true or not. And yet they all lay down their lives, every single one, and many after them. And so when it comes to us now, our faith is similar. It is the assurance and trust in God, not because of blind faith, not based on nothing, but based on these eyewitnesses who were there and who saw it with their own eyes and then they went on to preach it to to the whole world and then they laid down their lives for it. See, that's what we're basing our faith on. It's not belief in the absence of evidence. And I'm just talking about one. There's many, many more things that we base our faith on, but that's one, that's a powerful one. We're talking about eyewitnesses who saw these things and said, you know what, I cannot deny them. You can kill me. And they did. They killed them for that testimony. And so true faith is a trust and assurance in God based on what he's done in creation and redemption, which has evidence. And like the apostles' testimonies and willingness to die for it, there is evidence. Okay, that's just one, but there's many more. So then, if our faith is based on evidence like that, then why do people not have faith? Well, the Bible never says it's because of a lack of evidence. So if you're here struggling with faith and there's compassion, right, God will welcome you even if you're questioning. But the Bible is clear. The reason why people do not have faith is not because there's no evidence. To the contrary, Paul says, all of creation is a testimony to God's divine attributes and character. You just look at all of creation and there is evidence that there is a God and a great creator, then why do people not have faith? It's because they suppress the truth. They don't want to believe it. So it doesn't matter what is put before them, they just don't want to believe. And Jesus actually said that to the Pharisees and religious leaders. John came, neither drinking nor partying or being with people, and you said he has a demon. And then the Son of Man came drinking and being with people and sinners and tax collectors, and you say he also has a demon. And he's a glutton and a sinner. And so it doesn't matter what's put before you. I mean, you're just going to reject it anyway. Why? Because there's no evidence? No, there's plenty of evidence. It's because of the hardness of human beings' hearts. It's because you suppress the truth. People suppress the truth. And so if you want to have faith and a faith that endures, and if you're going to be a disciple, you must have faith, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts, brothers and sisters. Even right now, that's my plea to all of you. Do not harden your heart, but open your heart to the testimony of those who are eyewitnesses of these things. They gave their very lives for it. 
And faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And so their testimony is in the word. That's why faith comes from hearing the word. That's where their testimony is. So study the word. Seek out the word. Be a true seeker. See and test if their testimonies are true. And so how important is faith to you? This is the first thing God wants to impart to his people, to his disciples. But how important is faith to you? You know, most of you, if you're like everyone else, then you probably are concerned about a lot of things in life, right? Many people, they check their weight, they check their bank accounts daily, some people even multiple times a day because these are the things that matter, right? Am I healthy? Do I have enough money? I mean, some of you check your GPA, your academic record regularly. But how often do you check your faith? How often do you spend time before the Lord and before his word and say, God, do I have faith today? Give me more faith today. How often do you check your faith? The faith that the Bible calls more precious than gold, 1 Peter 1.7. The faith that the Bible says can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, Ephesians 6.16. I'm talking about the faith that the Bible says produces steadfastness. This is what will keep you from falling away and leaving church and leaving God and then throwing yourself into the world and then being destroyed, ultimately. The faith that produces steadfastness, James 1.3. We're talking about the faith that the Bible says can move mountains. It can say to a mountain, go from here to there, and it will go. And Jesus said, even if your faith is as small as a mustard seed, nothing will be impossible to you, Matthew 17, 20. Okay, this is the faith we're talking about. How often do you check in on your faith? Okay, 2023, okay, I gotta get healthy, I gotta eat better, quit eating so much carbs, right? Maybe I gotta get a side hustle and make some more money. Fine, do all that, but what about your faith, amen? What about your faith in 2023? What are you gonna do, especially as we talk about discipleship and following Christ, in order to receive the prize of eternal life and resurrection life, where is your faith? Where is your faith? And so this is the faith that God wants to impart, the faith that can raise the dead and turn the cross into glory. And this is the faith that will call you into his discipleship. So that's the first thing we see. Jesus led them up a high mountain in order to impart this faith to them. And God the Father spoke clearly to impart this faith to them. But that's not all. There was something else he wanted to impart. Shekinah glory. Shekinah glory. But in Mark 9, 4 and 7, it says, And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. So here, as they went up to the mountain, found their spot, fell asleep, and then suddenly a brilliant light began to emanate from Christ. And then a cloud overshadowed them. And in that moment, they woke up. And here, this is a clear reference to the Shekinah glory of God. This is what the Bible is clearly pointing to, the Shekinah glory of God, which is all through the Old Testament. But Shekinah, Shekinah is a word that simply means dwelling or one who dwells. And so the Shekinah glory of God is God's glory with his people. That's what it literally means. It's just another way of talking about God's divine presence with his people. So anytime in the Old Testament when God shows up in, with his presence, it was the Shekinah glory, the glory of God that dwells with his people. And this glory of God was the unique mark upon the Israelites. This is what set them apart. So for example, the Israelites were the only people on the planet who had God's presence dwelling with them and went with them everywhere they went. 
The presence of God literally hovered over this temple piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. It was like a wooden box covered in gold with two statues of angels, wings pointed at one another. And right on that spot above the box was the presence of God, the Shekinah glory. They also had the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. And it led the Israelites through the desert, the wilderness for 40 years. And this was also the Shekinah glory of God. When they got to Mount Sinai, this was God's wedding ceremony with the Israelites. This is when he gave them the Ten Commandments and also made a covenant with the Israelites, an eternal covenant. This was their wedding ceremony. And at the wedding ceremony, God showed up, of course. But the Shekinah glory of God came down upon Mount Sinai so that the people couldn't even approach the mountain, it says. This is the same Shekinah glory of God that was upon the tabernacle where Moses would talk to God face to face. The divine presence was right upon that tent and filled that tent. And as far as I know, Moses was the only man who actually entered into that presence. Everybody else had to stay far away. They all just walked out and looked at Moses going to the tent from the entrance of their tents. But Moses walked in. That was the Shekinah glory. And then finally, when Solomon built the glorious temple, according to God's specifications, the Shekinah glory came down. So much so that the priest couldn't even enter. So that's the Shekinah glory. That's the presence of God. It's what marked the Israelites apart from everyone else. And yet, look at this. This is amazing. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, to these discouraged, beaten down disciples who were confused, they didn't even know where all of this was headed, the cross, what does this, talk, what does this mean? God comes down and then the Shekinah glory enveloped them. Right? They weren't just seeing the Shekinah glory from far away, they were within it. It enveloped them completely. So this is the mercy of God and this is what God imparted to them, his very own presence. And this is what made the people of God the people of God throughout scripture, old and new. You know, today churches gather around the pulpit for the preaching of the word, amen? And this is good, this is right, it's absolutely essential. Don't go to a church if they don't preach the word of God. If they're just telling you good stories and, you know, five tips on how to live a good life, don't go to that church. Go to a church where they open up the Bible and preach and teach it to you. So this is absolutely essential. And yet, in the Old Testament, the people of God were gathered around what? The presence of God, right? Today, we gather around the pulpit and the preaching of the word, but in the Old Testament, they gathered around the presence of God. I've mentioned this before, but listen to Tozer. But he said, the presence of God is the central fact of Christianity. At the heart of the Christian message is God himself waiting for his redeemed children to push into a conscious awareness of his presence. So here's another amazing, indescribable gift his very presence in your life, are you aware of that? Earlier I said, do you check in on your faith? Are you checking in on whether you are aware of his presence because he's already with you? He's with us. But this is what he's waiting for, his redeemed children to push into a conscious awareness of his presence. And so the Israelites, they knew this is what makes us who we are. And if we lose God's presence, we lose everything. And so you see this all throughout the Old Testament, especially in Exodus 33. This is right after they committed the gross idolatry of the golden calf. By the way, the golden calf is unbelievable. But this is God's wedding ceremony, right? God called them to Mount Sinai to marry them. 
This is the wedding ceremony. And then as Moses went up to the mountain, Mount Sinai, to get the covenant, what were the Israelites doing? They were cheating on God on the wedding day. That's literally what was happening with the golden calf. They cheated on God on the wedding day. So imagine that. Imagine if you were about to get married to somebody and then you find out later that day that they were with somebody else in the back. I mean, everything's over, right? Everything's burning and crashing, but not for God. Even in that, God said, I will go with you. If you will repent, if you will break down the golden calf and burn it with fire and come back to me, I will go with you. And in fact, Moses pleaded with God saying, please God, don't take your presence away because if you take your presence away, what do we have? We have nothing. And so they knew that without God's manifest presence in their midst, everything would come crashing down. So when God told them, you know what, you guys are so rebellious, so stiff-necked, I mean, you literally cheated on me on our wedding day, I'm not gonna go with you. That was a disastrous word. That's what the Bible says. That was a disastrous word. They They began to mourn and weep. And so here's the great tragedy of today's church, not only in America, but I think everywhere. But I don't think many churches today would have had the same reaction if God appeared suddenly and said, you know what, you can keep doing what you're doing, you can keep the campuses, you can have all your programs, but I'm just not gonna be with you guys. My presence will leave. I think a lot of churches might just go, oh, really? And then just kind of move on with what they're doing. As long as God, you're gonna bless us, right? As long as you're gonna hear our prayers and answer them occasionally, as long as we can keep our buildings and our influence and keep reaching more people and get more people packed into the room, I mean, that's okay, Right? Just don't go too far, God. So I think the state of the church today would be very different from the Israelites back then. But how much do you value? How much do you understand? This is what God is wanting to give to you is the manifest presence of God. Listen to Tozer again. But he said, if the Holy Spirit, God's presence, was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did was stop and everybody would know the difference. And that's a great tragedy today. We're We're just religious. We're just having church. Let's just make sure everything is good and the cameras are running and let's just have church. And yet how many of us are now pushing into a conscious awareness of this Shekinah glory? And in case you're wondering, oh, but this is Old Testament, right? Roy, why do you keep mentioning things in the Old Testament? Listen to 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. We are beholding the glory of the Lord like those three disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. What is this, right? Behold the glory of the Lord. Where do we behold him? Here. In the gospel in the word of God. But specifically here, what is Paul talking about? Through the spirit. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that's where we behold the glory of the Lord. It's through the spirit. And we all are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Paul couldn't be more clear. Why do we have the glory of God upon our lives? Because of the spirit of God. So here Paul says in this passage that we have a far exceedingly more glorious ministry than what even Moses had. And Moses' ministry was so glorious he had to cover his face because his face was shining. 
and it was stumbling people, so he had to cover his face. Some people say he covered it because it was fading. Either way, he had to cover his face. But now, the New Testament, including us, it is far more glorious. We don't have a veil. We just look at Jesus full on, and we see his glory, and we reflect his glory. But that's not all. We don't just reflect his glory. But in the next chapter, it talks about how we are broken vessels. And yet the glory is within us. And so yes, one way we can shine the glory is as a reflection, but here's another way you shine the glory of God, through your brokenness. You know, back when we were just married, Jill and I, uh, we, I don't know where we got this, maybe it was a gift, it was a beautiful little cup, but it was painted crimson on the outside and gold on the inside. And this cup, it was by design, but it had cracks everywhere. And the beauty of the cup wasn't the gold or the crimson, but you know what the beauty of the cup was? Is when you lit a candle inside, it was meant to have a candle inside, and right when you light the candle, the light began to shine through the cracks. It was really pretty. I remember I, I liked looking at it at night. <laughs> we would light the candle and be like, ah, oh, nice, right? But the beauty of the cup was through the cracks. That's where the glory shined. And so this is what Paul is saying. Don't you know? Don't you know the Shekinah glory of God that is upon you now? You're not like Moses where you had to cover your face because it's fading. You're not like the Israelites who could only see it from far away. It has enveloped you like these disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. It has covered you. This is God's gift to you. You need to understand this. Every single day you can wake up and be in the Shekinah glory of God. You can be in the manifest presence of God. Have you guys heard of Jonathan Edwards? Have you guys heard of his testimony? Perhaps the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. The first president of Princeton Seminary, which became Princeton University. But his testimony, by his own writing, he used to go out into the forest and ride on a horse for hours and suddenly the manifest presence of God would envelop him, the presence of Christ, and he said he would just weep and pray while riding through the forest on horseback for hours. Have you heard of David Brainerd, the famous missionary to the Native Americans in America, in colonial America? He didn't have one convert for decades and yet he would just pray and pray and pray and by his own word, admission, he says sometimes the manifest presence of God will come upon him to the point where he began to sweat. He said God would be so upon me he would sweat as he prayed. Kind of like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sweating for the salvation of these Native Americans. Have you heard of D.L. Moody? Who was called to be an evangelist and he would go and preach and nothing would happen and then one day two women said, D.L., you need the presence of God. You need the spirit of God on you. The anointing, that's what they meant. He already had the spirit. And so he prayed every day. He said he prayed with these women or every week. And he prayed and prayed and prayed. And then one day he was walking through New York City. This was back in the 1800s. And then suddenly the presence of God came upon him. And he said he needed to find a place to go. And so he found the nearest friend living nearby. He ran there, knocked, and he said, give me a room. And the friend said, what's going on? Here, take this room. And he said he went into the room and he prayed for hours and hours, weeping and worshiping as God just filled him and filled the room. Yeah, have you heard these testimonies? And I've had a taste of that as well, brothers and sisters, but the manifest presence of God, the spirit of God falling upon an entire group of inner city kids. I used to lead an inner city ministry called Camp Jubilee, Living Hope. But we used to take all these kids from Nickerson Gardens, South Central, and we would take them up to the mountains and God would just come upon them. And I would see these kids just praising God and many accepting Christ and just falling on their faces and weeping and it's like, what's going on? It's just God. I mean, how would these kids even know what to do or do any of this? 
It's just God. We're going to Oaxaca. I've seen God's presence falling upon a hardened teenager. One time we were sharing the gospel with this one teenager and he was with a group of friends. And the group of friends were just making fun of us. They're like, ah, ha, ha, right? And they were like dancing and making fun of us. And the friend just kept looking back. But then as we just persisted, we just kept saying, hey, hey, pay attention. We want to share the gospel. We kept sharing the gospel, kept sharing. And then finally, suddenly, I don't know what happened. Like his face changed. He got very serious and he began to hear. I was speaking through a translator. And he just began to hear what we were saying. And then he just began to tear. And he just completely ignored the friends. I mean, the friends didn't even matter. I'm like, wow. Like, I think you're understanding who Jesus is. This is the same glorious ministry that we have. Amen? This is the Shekinah glory of God. So on that day, to a band of discouraged and broken and confused disciples, Jesus said, come up. Right, come up. I'm going to impart to you faith that will endure and my very presence, the Shekinah glory of God. It enveloped them. And this was no accident. Jesus knew exactly what they needed. And yet, there was more. There were more things that he imparted. And we'll look at that next week. But let's just come before the Lord right now, brothers and sisters. You need to understand, Christianity is not just a religion, brothers and sisters. As we close, this is my encouragement to you, but don't find church and miss God. Amen? Please don't. And many of you, you only have church. You don't have God. Don't find church and miss God. But you want God. You want God. You want him. You want his Shekinah glory. You want a faith that endures. You want the eternal gospel burning in your heart. You want the divine authority to carry out God's will in your life. And we will look at that more next week. But this is what you want. This is what you need. And Jesus is more than willing to give them to you. You just have to receive, brothers and sisters. Don't find church and miss God. Let's just come before the Lord. Thank you, Father. We just humble ourselves right now, Lord. We just need you, Father. We need you, Father. Too many of us, Lord, we would be exactly like those churches Tozer was talking about. The spirit of God would completely leave. Your presence would completely leave us. And we would just go on like nothing changed. Nothing changed. May that never be, Lord, please. Lord, let us be so reliant and so dependent on you moment by moment. Let us be so filled with your spirit and your presence each day that if you were to leave, which you wouldn't, but if you would, everything would stop. Like Moses. If you will not go with us, I don't want to go. I don't even want the promised land. which represented heaven. Moses was essentially saying, I don't even want heaven if you're not there. I'd rather stay right here in hell, in the wilderness where you are here. Because you're everything. You're everything. 
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's just come before the Lord. Can we just spend a moment in prayer? Don't harden your hearts. Your lack of faith is not because you have no evidence. Quit deceiving yourself. There is evidence galore. You just have to open your heart to see it. Quit suppressing the truth of God. Let's come before the Lord. Thank you, Father.